Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Stockwell service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Hello everybody, we are in Philippians 3 today, so if you have a device or a book or something, turn to, turn to it. Um, otherwise, feel free just to listen. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it's we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God On the basis of faith, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I, I don't consider myself yet to have, to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining towards, ahead, towards what's ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, well, God will make that clear to you too. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you uh, have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I've often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. Why don't you welcome my wonderful wife, Charity. 
Thanks, Ramsey. Um, hello, everybody. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Charity, or Hattie. And I come to this service regularly with my husband, Ramsey, who just read that. Just blew me away. Um, this is my first ever time preaching, so <laughs> be kind to me. Um, I want to start off with a little story. I've just spent a few days walking in Wales with one of my best friends from school. And when I was at school with her, we did something called Duke of Edinburgh together. And Duke of Edinburgh is something, it's a scheme that wants to get children in schools out into the wilderness, um, getting muddy, getting sweaty, eating out of tins, camping, and walking from 15 to 20 miles a day. And when I was at school, I was doing a lot of sport. And it was, it was fine. I would just kind of take myself off on these holidays. I'd walk, and then I'd be a bit tired, but I was absolutely fine. So Claire and I come to plan our route for this walk in Wales uh, that we just did. And we looked at one, and we were like, 17 miles? 17 miles, that's fine. We could totally do 17 miles. And uh, <laughs> we got to like halfway through, and I was like, my back is killing me. And then got to three quarters of the way through, and I was like, my shins are splitting, and my toes are rubbing, and it's just so painful. And I got to the end, and I was just a little bit broken. I was like, I really wish that somebody had sat me down and said, if you haven't done any exercise in a year and a half, maybe don't start with 17 miles. Maybe start with like seven miles and then build up from there. I wish that somebody had let me into that secret that you can't just go straight in. It was very painful. And I probably wouldn't have listened, but I do regret the walk a little bit now. Anyway, the reason I told you that is because when I read Philippians 3, I realized that it was a little bit like being let into a secret. It's a little bit like Paul letting us into his secret of how to nurture a mature Christian faith that can stand the test of time and trial. Paul, he was this indomitable pillar of the early church who had this most ridiculous, contagious, persuasive faith, is giving us his recipe for growing a faith like his. We need to pay attention to this passage. So Paul opens up chapter three with a call to rejoice, as Ramsey said. In my head, this is actually one of the greatest challenges we face as Christians how to keep faith and joy alive when circumstances really want to take it away from us. Joy is clearly really important to Paul because it's a recurring theme through many of his letters and, and Philippians in particular. Despite being held in prison as he's writing this letter, as we've heard in previous talks to today, Paul seems to have cracked the code for lifelong rejoicing. And here he's passing it on to us. So if you're here for the first time, or perhaps you visited, but you're not really familiar with what the, the bigger picture of the Bible is, I'm going to try and give you a brief overview. The Bible is all about God and how his creation, predominantly humans, relate to him. It's split into two parts called the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, God's people relate to him by following the laws that he sets out. And he sets out these laws for human flourishing to help us love each other well. The thing about these laws was that because they were set by a perfect God and none of us is perfect, they were actually impossible for anybody to follow 100%. When people fell short of the standards set by those laws, they relied on animal sacrifices to, um, to remove their imperfections before God. So that's the Old Testament. The New Testament, on the other hand, provides the solution to this dilemma through the person of Jesus. It opens with four accounts of Jesus' life, the Gospels, called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus claims to be God in a human body. He lived a life that perfectly fulfilled the standard that God required from the law. 
And in his early 30s, Jesus was put on trial for claiming to be God because it was blasphemy. And he was crucified. We're told repeatedly through the Old and New Testament that this moment would come. And Jesus seemed to knew that it was coming for him too. But he chose to go through it willingly. According to all four authors, he came back to life after three days. He came back to life, thereby defeating death. So in the New Testament, God's people relate to him through Jesus, who's the perfect mediator between God and man, because he was both at the same time. And he made the ultimate willing sacrifice that took away any guilt that we had with God. So Jesus flipped humanity's relationship with God on its head. Whereas in the old order of things, it was all about what, what we did and we had to do all the right things to reach God. Now, we simply have to rely on what God did for us through Jesus on the cross. He created a new order. That's the background to Philippians. So let's go back to the text. The first point from this passage that I want to draw out is watch out. Watch out. Paul starts off by warning the Philippian church not to let themselves be dragged back into the old order of relating to God by following rules. In the Old Testament, the Jews were given many laws to follow, to remain close to God and to be distinctive as his people. These include the Ten Commandments, which I'm sure most people have heard of. Do this, do not do this. Bless you. But a whole load more of them focus on physical laws. So don't eat certain foods, don't cut certain hair, etc., one of these laws was circumcision, which was to be performed on eight-day-old male Jewish babies as a physical sign of their belonging to God. But in verse 3, Paul says that God's true people are those who serve him no longer through physical actions, but through the Spirit. God's true people are those who boast not in the physical things that they have done for themselves to be righteous, which basically means being acceptable to God by being morally right and good, aka in the old order, but instead it's those who boast in Jesus and what he did on the cross to make them righteous, the new order. This took me such a long time to get my head around. I thought for years that being a Christian was all about following the rules and making myself presentable to God. I knew very little about the Holy Spirit beyond the idea that he was meant to be living inside me because I'd made a decision to become a Christian. But there was very little difference in the way that my insides really worked. My Christianity was mostly about what showed on the outside. Over the years, I've come to realize that the Holy Spirit really lives inside me. I've heard him speak to me when I rid my mind of enough distractions to actually be able to hear him. He's a really wise friend. He's a constant source of comfort and encouragement when I'm tempted to believe lies about myself. The Holy Spirit is right there, challenging me and um, helping me turn my gaze back towards God. The Holy Spirit is the means through which I relate to God. But the Christian life can look like a bit of a seesaw. We can understand this deeply one week, and then the next, we completely lose sight of worshipping God through the Spirit, and we slip back into simply doing the right stuff again. It's so easy to do this, which is exactly why Paul is warning the Christians in Philippi to watch out for the people who want them to slide back into the old order of things, whether those people are doing it intentionally or accidentally. They are the evildoers and the mutilators of the flesh that Paul is referring to. And so are most likely a group of people who claim to be Christians but who are distorting Jesus' message by saying, 
mm, you can follow Jesus's moral teaching, but you also have to get circumcised. You have to follow the laws to really be okay with God. That's just a direct contradiction of what Jesus said. So Paul takes some time to explain to us next why if anyone should be able to boast in the old order of doing things, he should. He gained impressive credentials by being born into the right clan, being circumcised at the right time, he performed all the right rituals, and he even persecuted people who rebelled against the old order of things, including Christians. He was well-placed to flourish in the old order. So the fact that he then turns around and says that the old way is futile and knowing Jesus is the only thing that matters is all the more persuasive. In fact, he goes even further in verses seven and eight to say, whatever were gains to me, i.e. all the badges he'd earned in the old order, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. All the things Paul used to cling on to, the credentials he thought would earn him value in God's eyes, he let go of them when he realized what Jesus was offering. Because Jesus is offering a total clean slate, a clear conscience, freedom from following religious rules and feeling like he had to earn his status and the fear that came when he felt like he wasn't doing it well enough. When Paul understood who Jesus was and what he was offering, he realized that all the things he used to cherish were like garbage. They were like dung. They were just utterly worthless. Now, back in Paul's day, adhering to religious rules and rituals was the primary way that the Jewish people worked out their sense of identity and belonging and flourishing. We can't really relate to that in our society and in our culture, in a faith sense, really, because we live in a very different society. So how, how do we make this relevant? What is our modern Western equivalent? What ideologies do we buy into that we think will bestow on us a sense of identity and belonging and flourishing? How does our society define it? Well, I think one way it goes about it is through consumerism. What house do you live in? Ooh, what postcode is it in? How beautifully is it done up? What car do you drive? What technology do you use? How many exotic holidays have you been on? It's also though, um, it can also be done through being on the pulse of where society is going and how society is moving. Being woke, being successful, being wealthy and healthy and beautiful being loved and admired by people, having power, having status and a good reputation, seeking out excitement and adventure and documenting it and posting it for all of the world to see. These things have huge power over us. We think that if we attain them, then we'll belong to our people more. We think that they'll fulfill and content us and keep us safe when troubles come. Now, please don't hear me wrong. I don't think that all of these things are bad or wrong in themselves. I love my home, I appreciate beautiful places, it's good to keep up with current affairs. I do not believe that we should avoid the physical by all moving into a, a remote unplugged forest together and just being forest people. All I'm saying is that these things can do an incredibly good job of masquerading themselves as being the meaning of life and tricking people into putting their faith in them. But are they really faith worthy? Can these things really do much to help us when the worst comes for us? For me, the easiest thing that I fall for is being accepted and liked. I grew up in a, a very big family, and Ramsey and I actually just came back from a family holiday with 180 people that I was related to either by blood or marriage. Um, it, was, 
<laughs> it was a bit crazy. And I felt this real burden to be accepted by them. And uh, when I became a Christian as a teenager, I became really self-conscious that because I was a Christian, my, my family were no longer going to like me and it would be a barrier to our relationship. So I grew more and more concerned to make sure that they liked me to the point where I just lost sight of Jesus and why I was even trying to be different in the first place. I love my family. They are amazing, they are awesome, they're fun, but I elevated my relationships with them so high that I thought that they were more important than my relationship with Jesus. And the reality is that all these physical things are fleeting. Many of them tend to not be a great comfort when grief and, hit, um, and loss hit us. And furthermore, you can't take any of them with you when you die. So recently, Ramsey and I were in Suffolk with um, my granny, because uh, my granny and granddad bought a house in Suffolk 50 years ago, and all of my cousins flock there. And every summer, my granny very kindly opens up a tab at the local butchers. And so if you ever want to go and buy meat to cook at Seamark, you just go off to the butchers and you say, put it on my granny's tab, it's great. She's very kind. Anyway, my mum and I dreamed up having roast lamb one Sunday lunch. And so my mum, like, trots off to the butchers and says... I need a lamb shank big enough to feed 16 people. And the butcher's like, oh, okay. So he goes off and he makes it and he gives it to her. And she's about to leave the butcher. And she says, um, oh, just out of interest, how much is this going to cost? And he said, 70 pounds. And mum was like, oh, dear, what have I done? So she goes back home feeling quite guilty and goes up to granny and says, Jane, ah, I'm really sorry. I just put a single piece of meat worth 70 pounds onto the holiday tab. I feel awful. And Granny turned around, my Granny's 88, and she said, well, Mary, I can't take any of my money with me when I'm gone, so I'm quite glad it's being spent at the local butchers. That's absolutely fine. And I just thought that was awesome. That was so wise of her to say, because we can't keep our money. We can't keep our Instagram followers or our PhDs or our job titles or our nice cars with us after we die. So awesome though these things are right now, they can't be there for us in the long run. In contrast, Jesus claims that he can be and that he will be. Jesus went through death for us and came out victorious on the other side. We can take our relationship with Jesus to the grave with hope that he will bring us out the other side as he did before us. All he says that we have to do is to make him our top priority in this world. We must follow Paul's example in saying, I consider everything a loss compared to knowing Christ Jesus. And if we put anything other than Jesus as the top priority in our life, we're buying into a value system different from the one that Jesus created, and we're thereby rejecting Jesus. The value systems of Jesus and the world are at, odd, are at odds with each other. You just can't live in both of them at the same time. That's why Jesus said in one of his most famous talks in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. That's Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. And if you're interested in hearing more, Christchurch London did a sermon series on it a little while ago, so that'll be on their website. If we try and live in both value systems, we're going to end up living split personality lives. Pretending to be one person at church and then at our midweek groups, and switching into somebody completely different at work during the week. It's a bit like trying to play for both teams in one football match. Whichever team is winning, you put your shirt on and ally yourself with them. But then the other team starts scoring and they seem a bit better, so you quickly go off and put their shirt on again. And in this scenario, at best, you're going to, ending up, you're going to end up confusing yourself. 
And at worst, you're going to end up hurting everybody else on the pitch as you oscillate between the teams without really ever fully committing to one of them. This means we really need to take time to consider what our priority, our top priority is in life. Because if it's anything other than Jesus, we have bought into the value system that the world employs. It's a value system that says we have to work hard to earn our value. And it's completely opposite to the value system that Jesus promoted. By joining Jesus, you accept that the world is not all it paints itself to be. You say no to life being purely about money and work and relationships and sex and experiences. Instead, you say yes to Jesus, who says that everyone is valuable to me, no matter what they do, no matter how old or young or rich or poor, humans are valuable because they're humans. It's actually very countercultural today, and it's utterly beautiful. It's the answer to many of our deepest longings and fears to be fully, wholly accepted for who we are, not for who we wish we were, to not have to compete against everyone around us for our value, to know that we are worth dying for and we're desirable and lovable beings. And there is a flip side. Jesus says that we have to be prepared to potentially lose everything that the world has to offer for Jesus' sake. But Jesus is worth losing everything for because when you follow Jesus, you gain everything it's at the same time. It's this crazy paradox of faith. If this is the first time that you're hearing this message, or you've heard it many times before now, but you now want to become a part of it, you want to buy into Jesus' value system, then I'd encourage you to chat with somebody here today, either Tim or Jax who are leading the service, or anybody in a blue welcome lanyard, or to me after the service. We'd love for you to come on an alpha course and to talk about the deep questions of life and to hear what Jesus has to say about them. We'd love to walk with you on this journey of changing the value system that you subscribe to because it was the beauty of Jesus' value system that led Paul to say, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. And for the Christians here today, I find it very easy to just go along with what Paul is saying. Yeah, yeah, I heard that all before. That's all fine. But can we honestly say that we live it out? Can I honestly say that I do? In truth, often, no. But there is huge power in speaking truth over ourselves. So if you deeply desire to subscribe to Jesus' value system, then we're going to do something together. We're going to say it out loud. This is something that um, Ramsey and later and I used to do at summer camp. And uh, we learned a memory verse together. So we said the reference for the verse at the beginning, and then we said the verse, and then we said the reference again at the end, so that when we left camp, we could remember where it was in our Bible and go back to it and remind ourselves of it. So we're going to try and do that a few times now and see if it sinks into our minds so that when the world is tempting us, we can pull this out and just, you know, slay it down. So is it on the screen? Uh, not that one. It's the one that has the, the reference at the top and the bottom. Philippians 3 verse. No, back. Yeah, that's it. Okay, so say with me. Philippians 3 verse 8. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Philippians 3 verse 8. Okay, I sort of believe it. I sort of believe that you believe what you're reading. But if you can, put a bit more oomph into it you know this is this is real these are the words of life people so 
I'm gonna go crazy, Ram's gonna go crazy. If you wanna go crazy, go crazy. We're gonna say it one more time, then we're gonna take the words away and see who's remembered it. Okay, ready? Philippians 3, verse 8. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Philippians 3, verse 8. Okay, let's try it. Philippians 3, verse 8. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Philippians 3, verse 8. Great, okay. Next week, I'm going to test you guys. <laughs> cool. So this is this verse. This verse is the heart of Paul's secret to mature Christian living. Having a relationship with Jesus, knowing him personally is paramount to the Christian faith, as well as partaking in his suffering. Those two things together enable us to attain resurrection, just as Jesus was resurrected. But one of the biggest mistakes that Christians can make, and I made it for years, is to think that knowing lots and lots about Jesus is a viable alternative to actually knowing him personally. Christians might know loads of facts about him. They might even be able to reel off pages of the Bible from memory. But that is not the point of the Christian life. The point of the Christian life is to have a relationship with Jesus. And there are basic rules to sustaining a good relationship with anyone, aren't there? So you have to spend time together. You have to talk to each other and to listen to. You have fun together. You cry together. You develop intimacy and you come to understand how the other person thinks and works. The Bible is meant to be used as a tool to point us towards Jesus and help us uncover who he is. The Bible is not the end. The Bible is the means to the end. It's the signpost to the real thing, to the real deal. And the real deal is the person of Jesus who's alive today. He's not just a historical character. He is a man who is also God. How is your relationship with him? Do you work on it often? Do you carve out time to spend with him in solace and silence? I know I'm talking to a lot of people who have many, many things to do with their time. There are lots of people who have highly demanding jobs and multiple children. Time is very limited. And that just means that we have to work all the more hard to carve out time for the things that we claim to be most important to us. One interesting thing that you might do is go and look at your bank balance and your calendar because those are the things that tend to reflect what we value most. Does yours reflect your relationship with Jesus? I'd recommend finding ways of doing it that work for you in your stage of life right now. Maybe it's literally just finding an empty room at work and going, standing, going and standing in it and being silent for a minute and a half. Even that, that can be enough for some people to just switch back into that value system that Jesus is promoting and not the rat race that all of the world are committed to. Are there any routines that you could add into your day to help you discern Jesus's voice from all the other voices that are coming at us in the world? I know that if I don't practice these things, my relationship with God breaks down pretty quickly and I start doing my own thing out of my own strength. So that's my first point. My first point was watch out. And the second point that I found Paul making in, in this passage is press on. And I have four things to say under this heading. Number one is that you can't be a complacent Christian. You can't be a complacent Christian because we live in a dynamic world and we're constantly being discipled by the things around us. 
We don't just stay still when we take a break from actively pursuing Jesus. We get pulled in loads of other directions, usually away from him. Because life is less like a linear race and it's much more like a stormy ocean. And if we stop straining in the direction that we want to go, we're simply going to be picked up by the prevailing current and swept away by it. You can't be a complacent Christian. In verses 18 and 19, Paul talks about people who are enemies of the cross, whose minds are set on earthly things. It seems likely that Paul is talking about the specific group of people who are claiming to be Christians, but who are really teaching a different and distorted message, that people need to believe in Jesus and be circumcised or, or follow the law. And it seems they're doing a really good job of confusing the Philippian Christians. But Paul comes down hard on these people, saying that these confusers are destined for destruction. They are deliberately guiding people away from the freedom that Jesus brings. And this is a twofold warning for us. A, we mustn't let ourselves be deceived by confusers into thinking that we can find our identity or our belonging and flourishing anywhere other than Jesus. And B, perhaps more alarmingly for the Christians here today, we really need to make sure that we've not unwittingly bought into the worldview that elevates physical things to the same level or higher than Jesus and that we're proclaiming one thing with our mouths and proclaiming something entirely different with our actions. So that's my first point. You can't be a complacent Christian. Point two, don't let yourself be bogged down by past failure. Recognize failure, sure. Say sorry to God, repent of it, and then recommit to him. Say, God, I'm sorry that that happened, but I'm, I'm going for you again. God does not get tired of us falling and getting back up time after time after time. He loves it when we do that. He doesn't need us to be perfect. He never tells us that we have to be perfect. Thank goodness. He just tells us we have to be willing. Point three, follow the example set by mature Christians around you in the community. Seek out wise, mature Christians. Impose yourself on their time. Invite yourself to their house for dinner. Ask them questions. Allow them to challenge you. They're hugely valuable resources in our faith journey. I can think of a few older women who really helped me develop a strong and sustainable faith in my life. We don't need to go this faith thing alone. Let other people encourage you. And also, another thing I found helpful is uh, reading biographies of epic Christian figures throughout history. Um, if you want any recommendations, come and find me afterwards. But Corrie ten Boom is a good place to start. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Jackie Pullinger, Brother Young. These people have all done incredible things and sustained these amazing relationships with Jesus throughout their lives. And it's really inspiring to read how they did it. And my fourth point is remember where you're going. Remember where you're going. Our citizenship is not of the world as it is right now. It's heaven. The language of citizenship in Paul's context is referring to being under Roman authority. So wherever the Romans went and conquered, they would set up an outpost where they could administer their rule from. If anything went on in Roman provinces that wasn't in line with, with Roman rule, the empire would send an envoy to that place to bring it back under control. Paul uses this language to remind us that we are in an outpost of heaven. God sent Jesus as a representative to set up an outpost of his kingdom here. And people who believe in Jesus are now citizens of God's kingdom. 
At the moment, though, we do live within a dual value system. Some people trying to live under God's rule and other people living under their own. God will send Jesus again to finally establish the rule of heaven on earth. And heaven is going to be a physical place where there are no dual value systems. It will be full of diversity, but everybody will be united under one king, Jesus. We'll, we'll all have equal worth and value and our purpose will be to worship Jesus. Now by heaven, I do not mean somewhere ethereal and fluffy. It won't be living on a cloud somewhere, as I believed when I was younger. The first time I went on a plane when I was age 10, I was absolutely sure that we were going to break through the, crack, the cloud layer and see these angels lying around. <laughs> I was like, why isn't anybody telling me about the angels that are in the clouds? It's really weird. And then I got up there and it's really sad that when they weren't there. <laughs> but instead of the comic style heaven idea that I had in my imagination as a kid, heaven's going to be here a physical recreation of earth, redeemed by King Jesus who comes back as the envoy to set things straight. That's what we're looking forward to. On this walk that I mentioned that I went on in Wales, after about halfway, I was in so much pain that the only thing that was keeping me going was the idea that I was, I was staying in a and b that night. I could sit down on a sofa, I was gonna have a home-cooked meal, I could get in a bath and I could lie down with soft pillows around my head. It really spurred me on to keep going. How often do you consider what the redeemed world is going to be like? Does it spur you on to keep going on this earth? It's it is quite weird to talk about and to think about. I, I don't do it very often, but this passage says that maybe we need to because it's a good encouragement for us. Paul says it should be an exciting and encouraging prospect for us to think about where we're going, what we're looking forward to, living in a place that doesn't have any pain or crying, no tears. God will be there, face to face with us, wiping the tears away from our cheeks. It is quite extraordinary. So that is Philippians 3. Paul letting us into his secret of growing a mature faith. One, by watching out for the things that set out to distract you from your relationship with Jesus. And two, pressing on in your journey of faith and not letting past failure hold you back. So could the band come back up for me? Um, what I'd love is for us to maybe sit in silence before the band start playing and, and think about maybe what God might be asking of us. What particularly struck us or challenged us? What might God want us to change because of Philippians 3, because of this passage, these words that Paul wrote? Is it that we need to watch out for those people and things that are seeking to distract us from knowing Jesus better? Do we need to maybe delete our Netflix account for a month, you know? The Screwtip Letters are a really interesting read if this is something you're thinking about. Or is it maybe that you need to press on more diligently and actively than you're currently doing to fight against the prevailing current in society and swim towards Jesus with all your might? I'd encourage you to ask God what he's saying to you through this passage. Maybe later on in the worship you could turn to the person next to you and ask them to pray for you or there'll be a prayer team up at the front and you can come and, come and talk to them. There are people here who would love to support you and go on this journey with you. So I'm just going to finish by praying and then we'll sit in silence for a bit and then we'll sing. So God, Father of all things, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to earth with a message that turns the world on its head. Thank you that we're valuable to you, not because of what we do, but just because we're human and because of who we are. We pray that you you will take us on a journey of being transformed by this knowledge, 
that we can remove ourselves from the rat race of the world and live lives of peace and deep joy that you have promised us. Help us to watch out for distractions and to keep pressing on towards you. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information and resources, head to Christchurchlondon.com.